Sports Radio 1043 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right, we're back, and let's go right to the phones. Joining us as he does every week at this time, except when we're on a different station at a different time, Nate Zielinski. Good morning, Nate. Good morning, Terry. How are you today? You know, I'm doing really well. Karen and I are down here in the New Orleans French Quarter, a block off Bourbon Street. We're going to a big concert with James Taylor and Jackson Brown tonight. But I, I make these sacrifices to make sure the show gets done. So I'm doing okay. Yeah. I'm hanging in <laughs> I'm hanging in there. <laughs> I was in. I was in extremely single-digit temperatures this morning, uh, holding down the show for you here. So uh, I think our, our situations are slightly different. <laughs> Other similar, the sacrifices we make are similar. Karen and I actually had to change the short sleeve shirts yesterday because it was too hot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Always a rough one. You know what? Elk season is is in full swing, and nobody keeps track of the animals or keeps our listeners more informed than you do. What's going on? Absolutely, Terry. There's a lot going on. We got some fishing updates with ramp closures and that kind of thing, uh, as well as big game. Well, let's start off with elk season. This is opening day of the first rifle season. This is an elk only rifle season. Uh, it's a five day hunt. And it is off with a bang. A lot of success this morning. We got down very cold this week. We had a couple of snowstorms. It got cold. And we approach and kind of look at this first rifle very much as a rut hunt. Um, you know, the bulls are still breeding. They're chasing cows. They're bugling. Um, it makes for an extremely successful hunt. We got cold. We got kind of nasty weather. And we were kind of worried that in some areas, you know, just certain regions of the state, that the bulls were going to leave the cows. Um, from what I understand from the areas I've been scouting, I talked to, you know, our Colorado Parks and Wildlife regional offers across the state. Um, it seemed like almost statewide those bulls held with their cows. It warmed up a little bit yesterday. Um, and so far this morning, it seems like the success rate is absolutely through the roof. So hunters were able to take advantage of the vocalization of the elk, hear them bugle, move into good positions, um, and really create a lot of success this morning. So a lot of animals uh, being harvested so far today. Now, with that being said, um, it's obviously region to region, animal to animal, but that cold front pushed them just enough to where they're you know, somewhat slowly wrapping up the rut. I mean, the cows will, if they're not bred, they will continue to cycle uh, for, I believe, two to three more cycles. So there's still always that opportunity of some breeding and some rutting. Uh, but for the most part, this is kind of coming to the end of that major rut phase. Um, and as these rifles started sounding off this morning, I'm sure that's all it's going to take in some areas to kind of stop that rut activity. So you know, if you have a lot of elk in one drainage or one small region of the mountain, when those guns start going off, uh, it usually doesn't take the more mature bulls very long to realize that that bugling and rutting and hanging out with the cows uh, isn't necessarily the most safe place for them. Um, so we do anticipate that bugling action slowing down. I wouldn't say it comes to a screeching halt, uh, but over the next couple of days, you'll definitely see some slowing down of that. Um, and that's kind of where we're at with that situation. But again, a lot of success and Honestly, the, the best thing for us was exactly what happened. Get some snow, get some cold, uh, not enough to cover the grass where it caused a migration, not 
freezing enough to where it froze that snow solid to hurt the grass. So we saw no migrations. We saw no change in their patterns. Just cold enough to spend a little bit more time on their feet. Uh, so not as much time in the bed. Uh, fresh snow to track them. So really cold and warming up like this is, is the ideal situation. So awesome first rifle hunt. Uh, we'll see what happens over the next, you know, four and a half days uh, if the success rate continues and kind of what that harvest rate is. And then we have a long break before we get into what we consider our second rifle season. That's a combined season of elk and deer. Um, we've talked about it, you know, a little bit, but the divisional water, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife, you know, they put together a structured season, uh, you know, five-year structure plan. And this year is the latest that we've ever gone with our seasons. Our fourth rifle season goes, I believe, until November 30th, uh, which generally speaking, last year, you know, we were stopping, you know, in, in the low 20s. Um, so the fact that we're hunting that late in November is just an ideal situation. So second rifles later, third rifles later, fourth extremely late. Um, so we're excited about it. We're the the Hunters that are hunting elk in migration zones are going to have a great year. Uh, the mule deer hunters were finally, you know, for the first time, honestly, in about as long as I can remember since I started hunting, you know, as a kid, um, are we going to have a true rut rifle hunt? So, so much going on in, in the hunting world, Terry. It, it's great to see. And really, this is the kind of the kickoff of the rifle season. Uh, Chad, before we move on to see some, some ramp closures, I'm pretty sure I know what you want to talk about. And you mentioned that these, these elk are going to get alerted um, to the sound of the rifles. Now, if I'm a hunter, I'm sitting in my car right now having lunch. I just came back in from the field. I'm going back out. Do I really need to be really ramping down on how vocal I am and really being careful? Is that what you're telling me? Absolutely, Terry. So, you know, you are hoping in a morning situation, afternoon session, you know, you're waiting until those peak times. So in the afternoon, you know, it's not uncommon for these animals not to get out of their beds until four or five o'clock. So I don't call until then. I don't call until I know they're out of their beds. And I'm always hoping to hear them first. When I hear them first, um, you know, I'll just let them naturally talk and I'll just try to sneak into position. So I try not even to call. And in a situation where I do try to start a conversation, I try to get them to, you know, to talk off to where I know where they're at. It is minimal. You know, with a rifle hunt, you're not trying to call them in. You're just trying to locate them as opposed to archer and muzzle little where you actually try to draw them in. Uh, in a rifle hunt, it's just about getting them to make one sound so you know where they're at. And then you're getting yourself in, into position to make that shot. So very much the calling is very light. And then I think in the back of your head, you're thinking if I'm in a situation that has a lot of hunting pressure, a lot of shots are getting taken, um, you know, what do these bulls do? And literally the, the herd bulls, the most mature bulls will just get up and walk off the herd. Um, from that point on, we go into an early post rut stage and it's literally a 10 day to two or a 10 day to two week, uh, time period that these bulls just recover from the rut. It's basically a relaxing time. So they pull themselves off of that. They spend a lot of time around cover. So whether it's Aspen hillsides or oak brush hillsides or darker timber. Um, they're not going to be out in those big open meadows. They're not going to be out way above tree line as much. They kind of hang closer to, to, you know, again, we call it structure, but just some sort of safety. Um, and they go independent. So if all of a sudden I find a group of cows that doesn't have a big bullet anymore, I'm looking, you know, slightly higher in elevation. I'm looking at the edges of the meadows, looking at smaller drainages. Just anticipate as these bigger bulls leave the herds to where that's what they're going to do. They're going to go 
basically low key. So instead of, you know, power hunting through meadows and big open hillsides, I'm really going to sit down behind glass and I'm going to be checking every nook and cranny um, because you're looking for an independent, you know, single animal opposed to a big herd. So more so, it's just good to have that in your head um, that those things will start happening over the next week or so. So I really anticipate those mature bulls breaking off. um, And I started looking for those areas, start, you know, scouring those Aspen hillsides where I normally would avoid that or, you know, the oak brush hillsides with darker timber. Um, I'm not necessarily saying hike around through it, but sit up on a, a higher elevation peak and glass, you know, hundreds of yards or a mile into these pockets and just stare at them. And you're waiting to see, you know, slight movement from these bigger bulls and just to kind of clue off where they're at and then put a plan together of how you're going to be successful on a harvest. But just anticipate if those bulls are not talking, if you're no longer seen with cows, anticipate you're going to be in that early post rut, which is again, that 10 day to two week period where they kind of just chill out a little bit. And again, if you know it's coming, you can prepare for it. You can start looking for it and you can be ahead of it. All right. Great information, Nate. Before we run out of time, I know you want to talk about some ramp closures. What you got? Absolutely, Terry. Just a heartbreaker. I mean, obviously, uh, our fisheries are managed as a fishery and as a water source. Um, probably the, the biggest one to talk about is Spinning Mountain Reservoir. We have been, it's been fishing good all fall, but we've really been waiting for a, a colder water temperature. So if you've been fishing spinny, the, the fish have been kind of scattered across the lake. Um, literally up until last week, early last week, our water temperature was in the mid 50s. It takes that water to drop below 50 to really gather those fish in a tight group. So when those fish are scattered, you catch one here, catch one there, but building a pattern's tough. So you know, in the previous weeks, we were having good days. We'd get 25, 30 fish, uh, and then you have bad days. We had work hard for 8 to 10 fish. It just kind of is what it is when that water's warm like that. We finally got that cold snap on Monday night, Tuesday. So I guided Monday. Fish were scattered, caught some fish, nothing banner. Super cold front Monday night and Tuesday. Wednesday, I got out there. My water temperature early in the morning was 44 peak of the day, I only warmed up to 49. Uh, the fish were gathered. We went from having an, an 8 to 10 fish day to having 131 fish day. Um, so the bite just absolutely blew up. I mean, some of the best fishing. I think we had one situation where we did 21 casts with, with straight with fish. Uh, of the 131, did not have one fish under 20 inches. Had six fish over 26 inches. Uh, so absolutely epic, but the water is falling. Spinney had a, a, a situation where they sold some water, uh, and long story short, the water is lowering in or anticipating to lower more uh, for the safety of all the anglers, trailers falling off the dock, getting stuck. Obviously, Spinney is a very windy place in the fall, uh, so to deal with the boat dock situation, unfortunately, they closed to trailer boats on Wednesday evening. Um, I know a lot of people did not get that message. You know, They did on their Facebook pages, sent on emails. They spread the word the best they could. We did the same. Uh, regardless, I know a lot of people showed up this morning with boats to, to find the bad news, but spinning now, it's still open to the public, just not the trailer boat. So you can shore fish, you can hand launch, uh, but but no trailer boats at Spinney. So that's more a public service announcement, but if you do have time to fish, um, now that that water is cold, fishing is absolutely world-class. So definitely still a hot spot to fish. The fish are in shallow water, but uh, again, closing that to trailer boats. And then also Terriel Reservoir announced that they are closed to boats uh, as well, and that was as of Tuesday evening. Uh, so of the South Park Fisheries, 11 miles still open, trailer boats, everything's normal. And Taro is still open, trailer boats, everything's good. Both of those should go to the end of the month. Um, 
carry-all did go into their fall hours, which is 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, so they, they used to open up a lot earlier. Uh, now they are in that fall time area, uh, time timing is what they call it. Uh, but either way, carry or Antero's timing for A&S inspection is 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. That's kind of the information on boating up in the South Park area. All right, my friend, if people want more information, book a trip or your events, how do they find you? Absolutely. Just go to tightlineoutdoors.com. You can uh, book trips. we got a ton of fishing still. We're doing Antero 11 Mile for trout, tiger, musky, pike. we got a ton of walleye and smallmouth action in the front range. we got our ice addiction events coming up and everything else. So just go to tightlineoutdoors.com. Get a hold of us. We'd love to get you on the water. All right. Thank great. great as always to talk to you, Nate. Thanks for the updates. Thank you, sir. You bet. Nate Zelinski, Tightline Outdoors. We're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, um, we're going to listen to... JR from Colorado Clays tell us how to pick out the, or what's the difference when you look at different shotguns and how you might determine which one is best for you. All that more on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. And joining us from Colorado Clays, Colorado's premier shooting establishment, is J.R. Pierce. Good morning, J.R. Hey, good morning, Terry. How are you doing today? Uh, doing very well, Terry. Actually, uh, fortunate enough to uh, be involved in a little fishing tournament, so really enjoying that for a change. I think you're just playing hooky is what's going on. but Yeah, I'm trying to make you jealous. Yeah, yeah I know, I know. Hey, you know, seriously, though, Colorado Clays offers somebody, no matter what discipline of shooting you do, You've got the rifle and pistol range that we talk about so much that are uh, incredible. You've got the shotgun patterning, and then you've got skeet trap, and I think you've got training trap and wobble trap. I may be getting leaving something out or getting one wrong, but you really have something for every discipline, so you really get to see and interact with a variety of shotgun shooters, don't you? Uh, yeah, Terry. So we, we have tens of thousands of our Colorado outdoors folks come out and visit us every year. And yes, a wide variety of people, a wide variety of reasons they come to Colorado place. We do serve everyone for pretty much anything they need, but uh, also see a very wide variety of firearms and uh, have accumulated a lot of knowledge as far as um, what guns work and how and what people's opinions of are. And the next few weeks, we're actually going to cover different uh, aspects of shooting. And today we're going to kind of dive into shotguns and maybe not tell you which one to buy, but kind of give you some ideas about what the advantages and disadvantages are. And people are going to buy shotguns for waterfall hunting. They're going to buy them for turkey hunting. They're going to buy them for upland game hunting. They're going to buy them for self-defense. And of course, they're going to buy them for just recreational shooting and competitive shooting like clays, sporting clays and trap and skeet. So it, you really have to understand what you're going to use the shotgun for, don't you? Yeah, Terry, that's really the first question a person needs to ask is, what do I have a specific use for this gun? Do I, Am I looking for a gun that will cover many different things, as you mentioned, home defense, hunting, recreational, competitive, uh, and then make your decision based on what you think you will be using the firearm for. Very important uh, before you, you know, pull the trigger, so to speak, on making a purchase. Let's kind of go through some of the different shotguns. Probably the simplest 
is a break-action shotgun, and those could be a single barrel, an over-under, a side-by-side. And, like, when I was young, I started with a single-shot break-action shotgun. That was my first shotgun. Uh, do you still see a lot of those, and what are the advantages and disadvantages? Well, yeah, Terry, so being a, you know, a clay shooting establishment like we are, we, we do see lots of break-ins. And, you know, a break-in is literally uh, how it functions. So generally, at a point about a third of the way up from the back of the gun to the front, with the push of a release lever, the, the firearm will literally break open on a hinge point, exposing the barrels on one side and the firing pin or pins on the other. And this is really the most simple and reliable type of gun. Uh, break guns will come in many versions from single barrel, uh, double barrels, like you said, meaning over and under where the barrels are stacked and side-by-side types. Now, most of the modern single barrel ones are kind of trap specific guns. And although they can be used for hunting and different things, the lack of magazine capacity uh, or being limited to one shot makes them more specific to the trap shooting world. Some of the older single barrel ones um, were just the simplicity and how they did things. And although they will work, uh, they won't keep up with the modern uh, single barrel guns as far as uh, just being accurate and easy to use. The side-by-side type shotgun, Terry, is mostly noticed that more of a nostalgic type thing. So a lot of the folks, you know, want to go on the the European hunts, got to have a side-by-side. And they're very usable, but they are inherently less accurate, if you can use that word on a shotgun, for for many reasons. Largely, the sight picture, um, meaning when you're looking down the barrel, barrel stack side-by-side is a big um, hindrance in your sight picture. And then a way the gun is held due to the way the barrels are stacked it is not nearly as comfortable and natural going into the shoulder. So although they will work, they are kind of limited. Uh, you do every now and again, you'll see them, especially in the movies, one of the side-by-side sawed-off. And some people just like the look of that and think that's cool for home defense, but it's really uh, kind of a limited thing. Um, the over and under style, now those are fantastic guns. They are very simple. They are very accurate, customizable, uh, but they're they're uh, not as easy to cross um, uses with, meaning uh, they're not so much designed to be a multifunction gun. Most of the over-unders are going to be for shooting clay targets uh, or hunting, something to that effect. They can be used for home defense. They will cross over, but they are bigger and bulkier and harder to get down to a usable size for home defense. So the, the over-under out of the break-action guns is really the best choice, and particularly if you're going to be shooting clays for recreation, competition, or hunting. Yeah, and you've got to remember, if you use it for hunting, you're going to be limited to two shells, which in some cases yeah. isn't an issue, but they are probably the number one choice for shooting clays. How about the one that I see is probably the most popular with beginners for good reason, and that's the pump? Yeah, so the pump and... Uh, that really, the for people who may or may not be familiar, um, all of the mechanical motions such as opening and closing the action, cycling rounds from the magazine into the chamber are achieved by the operator of the firearm sliding the forearm of the gun back towards the stock of the gun and forward again towards the front of the gun in that familiar pumping motion, thus the name pump. Now, many types and styles 
uh, with many applications ranging from the home defense hunting, recreational, competitive, uh, are available. And pump-action shotguns are known for being very reliable due to the simplicity of their design. Uh, they tolerate, you know, dirty and extreme environments well, which the hunters really like. Uh, you can get by with less cleanings and still have the gun function very well. Uh, one thing, and we've talked about this, Terry, one of the causes of that is you do need to manually cycle the gun between shots. So if there's any issue with that, sometimes um, you can get a short cycle. And I think anybody who's used a pump has seen that. When you're uh, wadded up with clothes hunting, get in a hurry, don't pay attention, you can actually uh, do a short cycle and not eject around and screw up a shot sequence. Now, the, sh- the pump gun probably is one of the most versatile platforms out there. And what I mean by that, Terry, is you can buy uh, one, of the, one of the base pump guns and you can have a hunting barrel, meaning a barrel that has removable and interchangeable chokes, which, you know, is good if you're going to be patterning for turkeys or waterfowl. Um, now, you can also, with the simple uh, spin of a nut, put on a rifled barrel for, say, shooting slugs at deer. Uh, you can spin on and put a barrel that has a very short barrel for home defense. Um, and the stocks come in a variety of um, configurations, too, some with pistol grips, uh, some will fold, some will retract. And uh, this is very handy because you can literally go from the shooting range or from the field hunting back home, fold your stock, put on a short barrel, and have a pistol grip home defense gun. And this is a very economical way to have multiple uh, guns with multiple uses in one package. Uh, a lot of them have lots of different sight mounts and options. And I think one of the really big things to consider, too, with the pump, Terry, is uh, as other guns go, they are very affordable. So if your budget is a consideration in the purchase, definitely look at that pump gun. Well, and I like the pump gun for a couple reasons. You mentioned one, reliability. They're just, other than, of course, the brake action is pretty simple. But of all the multiple action guns with magazines, the pump action just, if you cycle it right, it's going to work. And it's reliable. Second of all, I see a lot of new hunters. We we're going to talk about a semi-auto one here in a minute. A lot of new hunters will fire that second shot without getting their sight picture back. When you have to pump the gun between shots, it, it, shots, it forces you to bring the gun back into your sight picture. And I think it makes you a better shooter in the long run, even if you eventually go to a, a different gun. And like you said, the... Um, the cost that you can get into them reasonable. Some of the best names. And by the way, we're not sponsored by any particular shotgun company. We're doing this as general as possible, but you can get into the pump gun for probably the, a really good, reliable one for the lowest point on your budget. What about the semis? Well, Terry, the semi-automatics, um, uh, as far as that gun, with the exception of manually opening the chamber, um, yourself, all of the mechanical operations of that firearm, meaning the opening and closing of the chamber rounds, cycling from the magazine to the chamber and so forth, are achieved either by springs or by converting the energy created by the discharge of the firearm into these, you know, mechanical motions. And, you know, although the modern semi-autos are much more reliable than older generations, they are not generally considered to be quite as reliable as the brake action and pump types of guns. Uh, Semis also have a great variety of models and applications available, but generally with a higher price point than the pump 
for similar uses. Now, one great benefit of the semi-auto is less felt recoil versus other types because, as we said, that energy that is developed during a shot is used to cycle the gun rather than coming straight through the firearm to the operator. So although very customizable, uh, the quick change can be more complicated depending on the model of semi you have. So you should really check that out before you move on. Um, A good gunsmith can certainly tell you uh, a wealth of information with a simple phone call. Um, Again, Terry, the the real benefit of the semi-auto is the fact that even though you're not forced to necessarily slow down your shot, you're also not going through that big mechanical uh, motion with your arm that can pull the gun off the target. So uh, do the benefits outweigh, uh, you know, the pros outweigh the cons? That's going to be up to the individual. Um, but uh, semis nowadays are a very good choice as well. Just like, say, slightly more expensive and maybe not quite as customizable for multiple applications. Last thing before we run out of time, a lot of people have hand-me-down shotguns. Grandpa had one. Dad had one. Some of them are even bolt-action, which I don't think you hardly see that you can buy new anymore. You may. And some of them are break-action. But you have to be very careful before you take those out in the field or even shoot them the first time, don't you? Yeah, Terry. And, you know, uh, as, as I was just saying, and with any gun, if you're not sure about the function, if it's something you inherited or purchased, um, you know, secondhand, certainly the very best thing to do is to get a qualified gunsmith to check the gun out. Now, as far as the bolt action guns, yes, we do see them, but they are not uh, set up to be as usable as the more modern guns. They will function, and a person can get used to using them. Um, Don't necessarily not recommend them, but if you're going to spend any money, you would be better off buying a used, uh, more modern, uh, higher-level gun than an older bolt gun because you could real easily be disappointed. They are very slow, they're heavy, and uh, inherently tough to work with. And the last comment I want to make, and that's about the fact that Older guns, a lot of them weren't designed for the new shot. You know, we've got lead shot being replaced by heavy metals and steel in a lot of our hunting applications, especially. And a lot of guns just aren't designed to handle that. And you really need to find out if that gun can handle those types of shot before you even attempt to shoot them. Absolutely, Terry. And we do see a lot of that. Uh, And Pretty much without fail, any of those old bolt-type guns we were talking about are going to have a barrel with a fixed choke not designed for steel ammo. And even some of the other even more modern guns that have a fixed-only choke, uh, you really got to be careful and make sure those barrels were made for use with steel. And again, if there is any question, find a qualified person uh, to make that decision for you. We are out of time, but if people want more information, by the way, we do need to cover chokes. I think we'll work that into two weeks from now when we cover this again. And I think that's probably almost a segment by itself when people are trying to make decisions. But um, if people want more information, they want to get a hold of you, how do they do it, JR? Give us a call, 303-659-7117, or go to our website, coloradoclays.com. Look us over, take the virtual tour. Uh, see what our facility looks like. And again, by all means, uh, come see us, Terry. We'd love to have you. All right, my friend, go ahead and do your fishing thing.
Thank you, my friend. I'll send you pictures. Yeah, you always do. JR from Colorado. <laughs> JR from Colorado Clays. Great people. Just great people. We're going to continue helping you pick out guns over the next few weeks talking about it. Speaking of helping you, our dog trainer, Ben Garcia, is going to be on. We're going to start helping you with your dog training questions right here on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. To Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack Outdoor Gear. Let's go right to the phones. And joining us, our dog training expert from Hideaway Kennels, Ben Garcia. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, Terry. How are you? I'm doing great. And here's the way we're going to do this, Ben. Um, first, I want to announce uh, we had we asked people for questions. We had some great prizes. They got to choose the winner of the contest. Got to choose between. Three free oil changes at um, Prestige Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram of Longmont or a $50 gift card to go out and shoot at Colorado Clays. And the winner of that is going to be Allie Simpson. And we will contact Allie um, during the early part of next week and and, and they'll find out how to to, um, get the prize. But they sent in some great – I thought our listeners sent in some great questions, didn't you? Oh, they were great. They were all great. I mean, you could really take any of these and really spend a lot of time on the subject matter and have a lot of good conversations about dog training in them. So what I thought we'd do, we'll take as many as you feel comfortable in the time we have left. And then if we have to hold yeah. them over till your next visit, we'll do that. So why don't you get right into it? Great. So the, the first one, I mean, I didn't do these in particular order of I liked them or disliked them. I just went in a random kind of order. And, um, and Allie's was great, by the way, too. She's, she's got one definitely I want to cover. Um, the first one we have is Courtney. Um, she wrote in, we have a young Labrador at home that listens well and has an incredible amount of drive in the field but struggles to have an off switch at times in the house. Is there any strategy we can use to, re- to re- help remedy this? And, and that's a great question, right? So what's happening is Courtney's seeing all the dog's genetics in the field, you know, that, that Mother Nature gave him to, to hunt, to flush, to retrieve. But the issue is if it's having an, if the dog's having an issue at home, being crazy, not having a good off switch. So what I'm telling you is you're not doing enough obedience in the home. And that really is a matter of the owner, you know, Courtney, finding a good obedience program, really being disciplined on it, really sticking to it, and, and, and practicing those training techniques in the house. For example, like a, a place training, you know, where you tell the dog place and they have to go stationary and lay down. You know, like in our house, every floor has dog beds, and the dogs, when we go into that floor, they have to go lay down in their dog beds and be stationary. And, and that's kind of how we control the chaos of having three or four dogs in the house at a time, you know. And so really an off switch is the dog just doesn't know sit, stay, or, or lay down at, for a long period, and then it's wandering, and that's where it's getting a free activity to just kind of do whatever it wants. So, and a, a great question. I'm sure a lot of folks run into that one. So, yeah, it just it's just so common because people get into this a lot of times. You just don't think about every portion of the training you have to do. You, right. I mean, throwing a bumper, watching dog flush a bird is absolutely. I mean, it's my favorite thing to do too. I mean, I love seeing the dogs on birds, but we we have them as a pet inside the house more than we have them out in the field. So it just tells you, you know, you need to find a good um, obedience program. And, and there's a really good one. Um, she does a great job of in-house training. I mean, if, if uh, Courtney wanted to look up, 
Um, Connie Cleveland has a great program online you can do and uh, gives tutorials, gives videos, gives you tips of working on, you know, stationary laydowns on a platform or, you know, or healing and those types of things that you can implement into the house. Um, we have a rule in our house for our dogs that if we're sitting down, they're laying down. And um, so I simply take a leash, put it on the dog, put it around my ankle and make them lay down at my feet. And, um, and ultimately that turns into blind manners. You know, if, if I'm in a blind lane sitting down, the dog's laying down at my feet. So it's all relative back and forth to hunting. It's just a matter if you're asking the dog to do it in the house. And so, all right, my next question. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. The, no, the next say, question was, on to- was, yeah, was Jeff's, you know, and uh, it was a great question also. It says, when you get a new puppy, what are a few of the first fundamental lessons, building blocks to teach them? And, and I think that goes back to what we just tied in with Courtney's is, is a solid obedience program that's relative. Um, obviously, if you have a lab, it's sit, stay, come, heal. You know, those are going to be your main ones. On, on a pointer, it's going to be come and heal and woe, you know, and so it depends on the breed you have, depends on um, what your outcome of what you're looking to do with the dog is, but generally you want to pick three commands, three or four commands that you're just stationary on and working on, but um, I think everybody wants to see their dog retrieve, everybody wants to see their dog flush a bird, pointer bird, but what's way more important is that obedience work in that, that first month or two you have a puppy. And so, no, I, I, I hope that answers Jeff's question there, sir. I would say that kind of leads us to the question, can you do, um, somebody had a question, can you do if you, obedience and field training at the same time, I believe? And that was Allie's question, and that was, that was a great question that she had. Um, the, the first part she had of her question was about a dog barking, and we can get to that in a little bit. But the more important one she asked was, um, also, is it acceptable to be bird dog training and obedience training with separate trainers at the same time? And, and I personally have no problem with before training a dog and they're using an obedience trainer before they bring the dog into us. I think it's great. But I think those two trainers need to communicate and make sure they're on the same page. And I'll give you an example of where we run into a problem on. It was on the pointers. So um, a lot of obedience trainers don't understand that a pointer needs to stand and be on woe when it's on a, on a point. So they teach it sit. And ultimately what they're teaching that dog is when you're stationary, put your butt down and sit down instead of stand up. So really what we do, and we've had a ton of luck with it, is um, if we have a dog coming in for training or it's been in training and they're going back and forth between obedience trainers, just, just a conversation between myself and the trainer being like, hey, can you work on these three things for me? Can you work on woe on a platform? Can you work on heel? And can you work on here? You know, now whether they're using clickers, treats, you know, pets, whatever, that's, that's for that trainer to decide. But just the communication between the two trainers is really the ultimate thing. And most trainers, I would say, should be open to that relationship and those conversations um, to ultimately get you a better dog, you know, and because um, everybody has their talents, you know, and Terry, you know, like you may be good at one thing, somebody else may be good at another. And, and if you're bringing those together, the team, the teamwork definitely builds a stronger bond with your dog on there. A great answer. Let's move on to, let's get at least one more and maybe two. Yeah, so the next one was um, Stephens, and he um, he had a question that was, it kind of goes through some middle different things, and, and we'll, this one I liked, but it said, um, what do you do if your dog gets sprayed by a skunk in the field or bitten by a rattlesnake in the middle of nowhere hours away? Is it true that rattlesnake shots don't work out here because of the variety, variety of snakes? And um, I obviously am not a vet, but I rattlesnake vaccine my dogs when I go to Texas or I go to Oklahoma or Kansas to hunt. And um, I generally, like probably like you do, and um, I listen to the guides down there that are in the snakes every day. 
And and the two things they do down there in Texas, which you know the snakes are everywhere, is they snake break their dogs so the dogs don't pay attention to them, and they vaccinate their dogs. And um, and I I I follow their advice on there. They're in it every day. They know what they're talking about. They see it. Um, I've been down there doing a hunt in December and ran into rattlesnakes in Texas. So I I think that's definitely um, even if it gives your your dog a one in three shot of surviving, that vaccine for fifty bucks is worth every penny to me. Um, so I I think that's the one thing you know as far as snake treatment there's I, I would refer somebody you're talking to a vet in the region where you're hunting just because there's so many different snakes in different areas you know we ran into snakes hunting in georgia that we would never see in texas hunting or new mexico you know and we ran into ones in in arizona and, and partially you know eastern california that we would never see out here and so the shot the rattlesnake vaccine does work for some snakes not for others but i would definitely talk to a vet in the region you're going and see if they have any advice on treating a dog for that um also down in texas like i i didn't know this and i learned this last year down there hunting um or the year before we had a dog get sprayed by a skunk and, and really got sprayed and they used Dawn dish soap. So they, we were in, we were in deer camp, you know, we went back to their camp and, and, uh, got the dog, washed it with some, some Dawn and it broke up the oil from the skunk. And, um, it worked great. I mean, Dawn works great on oil spills for wildlife also, and it works for the oils from the skunk. And, um, we also had to use it on the collar. Our GPS collars got sprayed. The ID collars got sprayed and we just washed them with some Dawn and it, it didn't cure the skunk smell, but it definitely helped with it. For sure, and um, so just that's that's some tips I think. I mean, there's some odor off products you can use for a skunk spray you can buy over the counter. But if you're in a jam, that Dawn dish soap really works well. On the All right, let's try to get one more in. Yeah. So um, the the next one um, is is Allie's first question, which I really liked. Was says we have a young lab that is ten months old at the house, but is becoming a great field dog, but has learned out of um, learned from our blue healer to bark at um, everything that moves, how do we control the barking? And and that starts with the, back to what we talked about, the obedience training. So it's not that the dog learned to bark from the blue healer, it's that we allowed the behavior. So, I mean, if at our house, if our dogs bark because somebody's at the door, it's great. But if they're barking in the backyard just to be barking, I generally bring them in and put them in their crate, give them something else to do to redirect it. Or if I get a dog that's really barking and just being annoying about the barking, I use, I like the bark collars. I prefer to use that opposed to anything else. It's instant. It gets it right to the point. Um, I don't like the sell, the spray bark collars. I don't think they work. I've seen dogs bark and run the other direction because they know which direction the spray is coming out of. So I prefer to use the, the bark collars that have stimulation on them. Um, you can use them with all breeds. And um, it's more of that dogs don't learn it compared to they, they, they are allowed to do it. So if they're, both those dogs are barking, what I would do is either redirect it to give them something else to do and, and negate that behavior, or I would put a bark collar on them. Um, you have to watch bark collars. Like we, at our house, we have labs, we, and we have a Malinois and a Shepherd. And um, generally, if, during the day, if we're gone and they're going to be out, we'll put the bark collars on them. But at night, when we need them to be protection dogs, we take the bark collars off. So you, you need to watch when you're doing it and why you're doing it. I mean, obviously, if you have a dog that you need to be alert you, at night, you don't want to have a bark collar on and encounter what that dog's been bred to do. All right. We are out of time, but I think we have one or two questions left. Your next visit, let's go, and maybe you want to go in depth on some of these other questions next time you're on. Yeah, and then thank you to all the listeners that gave us these questions. They're great. It was fun. I loved it. It was a great, a great thing to dive in and think a little bit about what they're asking and get them the right answer for sure. So. All right. So how do people get a hold of you if they want more information in the meantime? Yeah. Yeah, they can find us on the web at hideawaykennels.com or on Facebook at, at Hideaway Kennels. 
And so we'd love to reach right. out. If anybody has any questions at all of what we covered or if it didn't make sense or if I contradicted myself in any way and they want to chat about it, feel, have them feel free to email me and we'll go over them again. So, All right, my friend. We'll get you back on again soon. I think we'll go through some of these some more. Thank you, Ben. Great. Thank you, Terry. Have fun down there. We'll talk to you later. You bet. Ben Garcia from Hideaway Kennels. We'll take a quick time out. When we come back, we'll close up this edition of Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Just yesterday morning, they let me know you were gone. James Taylor. Suzanne, Good the plans choice, they made put an end to you. You think so? This is one of, yeah, this is one of his, my favorite songs of his. I play this all the time myself. His, his music has just transcended generations and been out there for so long. I'm in New Orleans. I'm going to see Mr. Taylor tonight. Uh, and I'm also going to see Jackson Brown. And Karen and I are going to indulge in some not good for us, but great tasting Cajun food. So we got to wrap the show up here in the next couple of minutes so we can get out and do it. Um, all of you who sent in dog training questions, if we didn't get to your question, I'll talk to Ben and we'll make sure we take time. He's on again in two weeks. We'll address the questions we didn't get into and maybe revisit some of the ones. We ended up a little shorter segment that I would have liked, but it's they're just great questions. Again, the winner was Allie, and we will contact Allie uh, probably Tuesday or Wednesday next week and tell her how she can claim the prize she won. So that'll be great, and uh, we're going to move on from there. But I got a couple uh, fishing things I wanted to bring up to you, too. One is... The uh, spawning bite at Granby is in full swing. I talked to Dan Shannon from Fishing with Bernie. Now, the ramp is open at Granby from 6 to 6, and the fish fishing is just incredible. The water's down about 25 feet, but that's not too much to worry about on Granby. But they are getting just tremendous numbers of fish up to about 25 inches, you know, 20, 22 inches. But a lot of those 15 to 20 inch fish, this is the time of the year when you can go up to Granby and catch those spawning lake trout and have, it's not uncommon to have 30, 40 fish days if you know what you're doing. But even if you're just starting out and learning, once you learn some areas you can fish and learn a little bit about it, we use tube jigs, we use small little um, curly tails, we use gulp minnows, different presentations, doesn't have to be huge. You get them in front of them, they'll normally eat. So that's going on. And don't be afraid if you're a shore angler to go up to Granby. Find some gravel areas near the riprap or close to the shore. And cast out spoons is what I like to do. But anything, you can cast out the jigs too. But you can work the spoons above the rocks. You'll get hung up a little less. And you'll catch these lake trout from shore right now too. That should go on for another week or two. Pueblo, um, our friend Charlie Black was is down there, was down there. Uh, I saw a picture of his daughter with a beautiful wiper they caught. Didn't get a chance to talk to Charlie, but he's normally down there this time of the year doing jigging spoons or jigging wraps, catching walleye's wiper. And Charlie even caught a state record catfish with that very technique this time of the year down in Pueblo. That bite is on. Boat ramps are going to stay open at Pueblo. They don't close unless there's inclement weather for the day. So you want to get down there and take advantage of that. Uh, I have a YouTube video on my channel, The Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom, where Tom Bruno and I went after him with jigging spoons. And we not only did it for a television show, but I did it for an article for In Fisherman Magazine. Teaches you how to go after those fish. And it's just one of the best bites of the year if you want to get down 
two Pueblos. So take advantage of that. Follow us on Facebook. If you followed us on Facebook at Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, you would have known about the dog question and the contest that went with it. We put a lot of the segments we repost on our Facebook page. And we talk about a lot of upcoming events, and we also talk uh, of live reports from the field on Facebook. That's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on Facebook. Thanks to Kyle for keeping us going. Thanks to Karen for keeping the show online. We'll let the Eagles take us to the top of the hour. 